Well, good afternoon. Thank you for coming along um, this um, lecture today in my series on thinking about Britain's um, economic future. Today we're going to look at the housing market. Um, I know it's a topic close to many people's um, hearts, so I'm glad you've come in to help me understand better what's going on in this uh, wonderful country and in our housing market um, right now. Um, and I'm going to start, as usual, with um, a few interesting quotes that I think illustrate, and I, I'll use the word English here at great danger. Um, I guess I might mean British, but I always think an Englishman's attachment to their property. It looks like every 200 years or so, we tend to have a, um, a, a direct statement as to the importance of housing in, in England. And uh, the earliest reference I could have been able to find of the idea that an Englishman's home is his castle goes back to Richard Mulcaster, 1581, who was actually talking about as a, as a headmaster of a school, not unlike the Mercer's school that used to be established at this very spot, but headmaster of Merchant Taylor's school, made the very point um, that um, it's a parent's duty as well to educate their children. And he used the phrase right at the end of his house is his castle. And that's, I think, the earliest... Um, time we've been able to find this phrase <coughs> being used. If we go on a couple of hundred years, we've got William Pitt the Elder as well, talking about the importance of a home to an Englishman. It's not something that anyone can easily transgress. You can do what you want, but you have to respect the private property that may be contained in someone's home. And that was something that William Pitt the Elder was talking about a couple of hundred years later. And if we move on another couple of hundred years, we get the quintessential post-war statement and everything I kind of say about housing, I think, reflects this quintessential post-war statement of our former Prime Minister, Mrs. Thatcher, that if people want a home they can call their own, she said, in a... Um, I, think it's, I think it's almost poetry, actually. A home they can call their own. It's clearly something that resonated with policy, but more than that, I think, reflected some deep preferences in this country about our attitude to homes, their ownership, and what they might mean to us. And I think in this lecture we shall explore some aspects of housing. I can't cover it all, and some of the answers I will come to in my sixth and final um, lecture later this year. But let me sort of spread a few gems in front of you to see what you want to pick up and where it takes us. Um, when economists think of housing, if indeed they ever do, they tend to um, think of housing as the consumption of uh, accommodation units, the sort of idea that when I buy a home... I'm consuming, over time, the right to live in that home. That's a very basic idea of what economists are thinking about. And to that, I might add, the economists might think that as well as owning the amenities that flow from living in a particular home, which might reflect where it is and the size of the home and the quality of your neighbours and the schools that are nearby and the quality of the railways and the roads and all those kinds of things that might go into that broad de definition of an amenity that you're consuming over the lifetime of that home, you might want to add as well the underlying value of the land, which in most cases you also have access to when you buy a home in the UK. Not in all cases, and I'm not going to bore anyone as far as I can on leasehold matters. I may bore you on something else, but I certainly won't bore you on matters of leasehold. I'll leave that to others to think about. But clearly that's what people think they're buying when they buy a home. Um, and when we're going to look in a minute at house prices, what we want to try and understand are the preferences 
Why is it that, that people may want to buy a house in the way that they do? And do those preferences in any way help us understand the evolution of prices? Now, simple consumer theory would say, if I'm buying a large number of goods, what I want to do with each good is make sure that the, the, the value I get in terms of my own utility from that last unit of a good that I purchased per pound that I spent on it is no more than the return I get from any other good. So you could think of it as an equation, and I've been warned not to put equations up, quite rightly. I think it's too early in the day for that kind of thing. But what you want to think with any set of goods is that you want the marginal utility from the consumption of that good over the price of that good to be the same. And you could think of it as an arbitrage opportunity. If the last unit of a good gave you a higher marginal utility per pound than another unit of a good, then you'd buy more of that good. And as you buy more of that good, its marginal utility will fall. So the arbitrage problem you have is to ensure that all the goods that you buy have the same marginal uh, utility with the last unit bought per pound that you spent on it. So you won't want to reallocate your expenditure. And of course, a lot of economists will put housing in the same bracket. We're just buying consumption goods. It's not entirely right, actually. And the thrust of one of the points I'm going to make today is that we also buy housing as a form of saving. Um, many of us will think of our house, correctly or incorrectly, we can come to that later on, as the family piggy bank, something in which uh, the value of which the value will rise over time, allowing us at some point in the future to liquidate that value and trade down and hand over money to our successive generations, or make a donation to an academic institution. I very much uh, favour the second, I think, if, if you don't mind. Thank you very much. I'll just have a sip of water. So, in fact, housing is complicated because it's not only a consumption of a momentary item, it also involves an investment, the accumulation of assets. And to understand both of those things is remarkably hard because the, the way that we tend to think about the consumption problem in economics is that we consume today in terms of the marginal utility problem that I've outlined, and what we don't consume, we save for future consumption. So the savings that I have are things that I'm going to draw upon in the future. In fact, housing offers both, and that's why it's peculiarly difficult to understand, and I'm not pretending for a moment I fully understand it. So in terms of housing, we consume, we save, we build up assets, we build up wealth, and within that as well, the house is the place from which we work and run our lives. So it's therefore also a critical part of who we are, our identity, our place in society, our access to labour markets, and I've said earlier on, our access to schools. So it becomes very, very complicated very, very quickly. And I've offered here a whole bunch of issues that we might want to consider. Um, if this um, were a longer lecture course, indeed, I could have had all six lectures, I think, on housing, and I'm sure all of you would have come along to them all. But there's a bunch of issues that I will touch across let me just explain, I think Leverage House, but I will talk about, when I say MTM at the bottom there, I'm talking about the monetary transmission mechanism, which I'll come to later on, and that's the way that changes in interest rates set by the Monetary Policy Committee of the Bank of England may impact on demand, and by impacting on demand may affect the balance between demand and supply in the economy, and may lead to the increase or decrease in inflationary pressures. So that's all the MTM means, but I'm just listing all these things simply to show how complex housing is. It's not a simple item. I wouldn't for a second say that buying oranges is necessarily simple. There's a very complex chain through which the purchase of oranges occurs, but in some sense it's considerably simpler than thinking about the housing problem. So there's a large number of issues there. 
that I may touch upon, but they're there simply as a frame of reference for you to understand, and I'm sure you do, how complex the issue is of housing. So let me um, go back to my, my first point about preferences. And what I want to think about preferences is a simple sense of spending money up to the point at which the marginal utility I get per pound is the same across all goods. And if my preferences don't change and the value of particular items don't change, I might expect the fraction of my income that I spend on individual expenditure heads to be stable over time. For example, in 1957, why should it be that I want to spend um, some 30% or more of income on food, and yet by 2016, it's about 15% of income on food? Does that mean I don't like food in the way that I do have? It suddenly developed a, 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 an anti-preference for, for food, a negative preference for food? It's not quite the case. There may be all kinds of reasons with increase in income and, and reduction in prices that we're able to satisfy our marginal utility by spending less on it than we did in the past as a fraction of our consumption basket. So there may be all kinds of reasons there. But the clear trends I want to point out here to you, if you hope you can see them, the dark blue line is housing. And I should uh, cite this is a chart that the Financial Times produced last week. Um, in 1957, 56, towards the late, late 50s, the fraction of income spent on housing which I include mortgages, amenities, council taxes, all the things that are tied up in housing and rental income, for the average family, was around 9% of, of their consumption basket. So a significant but relatively small fraction compared to food. And yet by last year or so, it was around 18%. There's been a doubling of preferences for expenditure on housing in some sense. Preferences, I mean the actual fraction of expenditure in the household consumption sheet, balance sheet. At the same time, indeed, leisure goods show a similar increase, going from 8% to 19%. So in some combined sense as a society, we seem to be wanting to spend more of our income on things related to housing, leisure and goods, rather than what we might have thought of in the past as necessities. So we're taking a view as to how we're going to spend our leisure time and our time when we're not at work. Generally, I guess it's not always the case anymore. We don't work at home. We work in other places. So it's interesting that the things that are ascribed as the things that we do when we're not at work are taking a, very a much larger fraction of our over overall income expenditure. And that fact that it might, in some sense, reflect preferences. I should be very clear. The outcomes here reflect not only preferences, it reflects the changes in income and the changes in relative prices. But overall, the fact that we're spending more on these issues might tell us that overall we have a... We have a social interest as a society in, in, in housing. And that, I think, might be part of the explanation for some of the things we're about to see in a minute. And underpinning that, part of the same phenomenon, I think, is this large increase in owner occupation that we've seen over the long period. I take the numbers from 1980 onwards. Let's leave the dotted line aside at the moment. The left-hand side gives you the number of households. So the only occupied numbers in 1980 were around 12 million, and this peaked at about 18 million uh, around 10 years ago and has been very, fairly stable since then. So 18 million households are owning their own houses. And that's really just something that underpins the previous number. It's not surprising as a society we're spending more on housing if more and more people are owning their own homes. 
Um, within that, you can see the large decline has been the reduction in those renting from local authorities. And in the recent past, since the mid-noughties onwards, we can see an increase in both private rented um, and uh, those renting from housing associations. And it's those two increases that have led to a small fall in the overall fraction of owner-occupied. The, the sort of owner-occupied fraction peaked in the early noughties at around 70% and has been in a sort of marginal decline since then as more and more people of the overall stock of households have entered, have entered either private rental accommodation or rented from housing associations. So they've sought alternatives to the owner-occupied status. And I think that itself is um, interesting that we've had this very large increase in home ownership. It's been certainly part of successive government policies to encourage that level of home ownership. Um, it's some measure of our, of our stake, in some sense, in the local society in which we live if we own a house there, I suppose, is the argument. Um, now, let's move on to something that may be close to many people's hearts, and that is, if you bought a house many years ago, how has it done relative to other assets? Has it done better or worse than assets in, uh, investments in alternate assets? And I hear, here I'm simply showing uh, an index of the aggregate house price in the UK, the average house price in the UK, which is itself an incredibly difficult thing to measure. You haven't got the ability to measure the same panel of houses over time and see what they're buying and selling prices are. All you can do is measure the houses that are bought and sold. So the index itself is subject to considerable measurement error. Since the same kind of measurement errors are ascribed to equity prices, you can take an average of the top 100 or top 250 firms and call it the FT 120 or 150, but again, that's subject to all kinds of problems to do with selectivity bias that may overestimate movements in equity prices. I can give a plug here for a lecture that I gave in the year 2015-16 here. The third lecture was on uh, the difference between equity indices, returns, and interest rate returns, and that might be something people want to look at. But all I've done here is take the long secular movement in house prices and deflated by the prices of goods and services. So the index here is showing, um, in terms of consumption units, how expensive a house is or the investment in a firm is. And both have increased. So in terms of the price of consumption uh, goods, equity is around three times more expensive than consumption goods in, in 1946. It means that they've tripled in price relative to the overall basket of goods and services. So in other words, if you'd invested a certain amount of money in equities, the return today would have been enough to allow you to buy the goods and services that you bought in 1946 adjusted for quality, which itself is quite difficult, and still give you an excess return. So you'd have some money left uh, to buy things that weren't around in 1946. So that's good. Equities have done well. You can also see they're rather volatile. There's even been a period from the early 1970s where equities showed a negative return in terms of the price of goods and services. Same is not true in the UK for house prices. They've shown a real uh, positive return, except arguably for the first 10 years, where they look flat from 1946 to 1956. But they've not only shown a good return in real terms relative to goods and services, but at least a return that's no worse than that which we find in equities, which is unusual. 
don't find that typically across the world, that house prices on average do better than equities. But in the UK, it seems to be the case that house prices seem to be a good investment. And that harks back to my point some moments ago, that houses are not seen as merely consumption. They're seen as a vehicle for our savings. Now, whether that's appropriate or not is something I'll come to at the end. But the results here are stark and very interesting to me. Indeed, we can move away from this long-run or secular pattern to look at shorter-term returns uh, from equities, housing, or bonds. The red line here is equities, the green is housing, and the blue are bonds. And um, what I'm showing here are the 10-year returns. So if you invested every year from 10 years to in 1951, and in 1960, in the 10th year, you decided to uh, sell your investment, the axis on the left-hand side tells you your return relative to the amount of money you put in. So you can see that in 1960, whether you'd invested for 10 years in housing, equities, or, or bonds, each of the returns were greater than one. I haven't got the pointer here, but you can see that they're, e they're each giving you a return more than the amount that you put in. And just to deal with the fact there can be a great deal of volatility, I started the exercise again in 1952, ran it to 1962, and 1953, ran it to 1962. So essentially just taking 10-year slabs just to see that if I invested for 10 years in any random period over the last 60 or 70 years, is it still the case that housing is a good investment relative to equities? And I think the answer is probably it is. Um, all the investments show a return above the one line. The one would be when you get your money back. And in some cases, for example, in the 1970s, um, if you'd invested um, throughout the 1970s, your returns in the 1980s in equities would have been very good indeed. But that's not the case if you'd invested throughout the 1970s, your return, 1960s rather, your returns in equities, which is the top right-hand bar, would have been negative for many of the periods. So the equity returns, as you'd expect, are very volatile and don't offer a very good return for short-run savings. Now you might ask yourself why I've done this for a 10-year period. Well, I was just trying to get an idea of what you would get as a return if you were saving for a deposit. If you were a 10-year savings process for a deposit, which would be a good asset to save into? And it says that if I want to have some certainty that in 10 years' time my money will not have disappeared or indeed grown, the kind of things I should be investing in are bonds and or housing, if I possibly could, rather than equities. And indeed, I think for, well, either investments in the 1990s that paid off in the 2000s or investments in the 1960s that paid off in the 70s, housing did very well indeed in the UK. The one problem, of course, is that, and we'll come to this later on, it's not easy to buy little bits of housing, whereas you can buy units of bonds and units of equities. And an argument I'll have later on is maybe to develop markets for buying smaller units of housing that would allow us to invest before we can buy the whole of a house. Um. Before going on, I, I, and one way that that market for equities has been developed is in the government's help to buy scheme, which has allowed, for example, the official sector to participate in the purchase of new homes being built. And that in equity involvement 
is sometimes available for people who work for long-lived firms such as universities. They can sometimes help you with equity purchases. Um, and the help to buy scheme has accounted for some 3% of overall transactions since it was brought in, uh, but about 30% of new build transactions. So it's been a way of, of widening equity participation, but it's not been broadly available to the private sector to allow equity participation in housing investment. Maybe something that would help in the future. Let's move on. So, a couple of points that we've raised so far. Housing is complex. It, it performs a lot of functions. And yet, housing returns seem to do very well, particularly in the UK, either at long horizons and short horizons. And therefore, as a population, we've realised that they offer a reasonable avenue for our savings, either in the short run or the long run. And one of the reasons might also be for that is the amplification of the lending cycle by the financial sector itself. The financial sector can't judge very well when you try to borrow from it how good a borrower you're going to be. You may just run off with the money. So they want to have some idea of how well uh, uh, healed you are. And the way that they do that is they ask for collateral. And the price of collateral tends to rise over the business cycle. So that if I have a certain amount of collateral, um, as there's a business cycle expansion, asset prices will rise and the value of my collateral will rise. That will then mean that when I go to the bank or building society, I will have more collateral to offer than I would have otherwise have had, which may make it easier for me to borrow. It's entirely plausible, and in fact empirically verified, that lending cycles follow the cycle in the sense in which lending becomes easier as the economy expands, people find it easier to access loans, and this may itself provide some uplift to asset prices. So there's some circularity in the behaviour of asset prices, lending and borrowing. This is a chart from the Bank of England's Financial Stability Review, and, and um, what you can see here is some movements in that business cycle. The data um, suggests that Credit extended to private non-financial corporations, household credit and asset prices move with the cycle. In the language of economists, it's pro-cyclical, very much following the mechanism that I've just outlined. Asset prices rise, the value of those of collateral, that's bits of wealth that we may own, increase at the same time for those of us who own it. That makes it easier for us to post collateral and show that we're a good credit risk. The banks lend us more money. If we have more money available to us and we go to a fixed stock of assets, we may find the prices rising further. If they rise further, then those of us with collateral can post even more. And so the cycle continues. Um, and indeed, such cycles may from time to time stop. And one measure of what happens when they stop are, are repossessions. And you can see at the same time when this process overextends itself, what happens is the quantity of lending increases, but the average riskiness of the portfolio will tend to increase. Go back to that idea of the marginal. The marginal person borrowing, after a long expansion in borrowing, is likely to be riskier than the first person who borrowed money. This means then, as the quantity of lending increases, so does the riskiness of lending. And we see that in the recession of the late 80s and early 90s, there was a large increase in repossessions in England and Wales. And uh, again, there was an increase in repossessions 
even prior to the start of the financial crisis, but particularly after the financial crisis of 2007-8. So there's a possibility there for further amplification, not only in the upswing, but in the downswing. If we reach the point at which lending has saturated the economy and prices are at some peak, and then that risky person right at the end is unable to meet their loans because they have lower levels of human capital, they work in a more precarious industry, or they just took on too much debt in the first place, and possibly interest rates rose at the end of the expansion, making it difficult for them to meet their payments, we may find there are repossessions and closures. If those repossessions and closures come onto the market as a form of supply, that may lead to a reduction in price and further repossessions and closures in the economy, therefore adding to the cyclicality in the downswing as well. But I would like to draw your attention to the scale on the left-hand side. All economists, I'm telling you there's a big story here. Actually, repossessions are tiny. This is a percent, half a percent of all homeowners um, in 1991-92 repossessed. Now, that may be large enough to trigger some large price falls if it's large relative to the number of transactions, but at least unconditionally, it's a relatively small number. And despite the size of the financial crisis that we've all been observing in the last 10 years, the numbers of repossessions, certainly relative to all homeowners, the scales here are not quite right. I've looked at repossessions in England and Wales, but my denominator is all homeowners in the UK. So the numbers are slightly lower than they should be. But I, I, I think the broad pattern is correct, that the number of repossessions is very small indeed. So somehow or other, the policies that we've adopted through low interest rates um, have helped limit the extent of the downswing. I'm not saying there hasn't been a downswing, but it's certainly helped limit the extent of the downswing in the last 10 years. Well, let me go back to the point about increased in lending, increased in borrowing uh, as well. Look at the blue line first. This is the stock of lending, uh, secured lending to housing, um, to, um, to uh, households, I should say, not housing, to households. Um, and the scale on the left-hand side is relative to household income. So in the early part of the story, when we looked in the 40s, 50s and 60s, stock of lending on a secured basis relative to income of the whole household sector was low, some 20 to 40%. Progressive relaxation of credit conditions under the Radcliffe Commission and following competition credit control in 1971 and then further relaxations <coughs> to, excuse me, in the early 1980s. And we can see the stock of lending relative to household income ratcheting up in the 70s from some level of 40% to 60 or 70% or more, and again from the late 90s onwards, a further ratchet up from some 80% to over 100%. This rapid increase in the stock of lending relative to household income. Do excuse me, I'll have a sip of water. The green dotted line refers to an axis on the right-hand side. We can see in the, in the immediate three or four decades after World War II, there was a rapid increase in the growth of lending as this liberalisation of financial markets occurred. And to some extent, therefore, it looks like the early part of the increase is the removal of suppression in financial markets, what people sometimes call financial repression. People may have been able to borrow, may have wished to borrow, but they may have found borrowing constrained. 
uh, apocryphally, it may have been necessary to join a golf club before you could get a loan from the bank manager. Uh, as those re- uh, restrictions were relieved, uh, relaxed, more and more people found it able, uh, possible to gain the loans that they wanted to climb on the housing ladder. So the growth rates that we see in the early period may not have been terribly problematic. And then what we see from the late 90s onwards is a further increase in growth rates of lending, up to 15% or more, and a, 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 a contraction in the growth rates that are still positive I mean, there are around 5% or less at the moment. And that in itself has meant that um, even though there has been some growth in the stock of lending, because household income has been growing somewhat faster than that, um, the stock of lending to household income has fallen from the peak level of 120 to around 100% of GDP, uh, not of GDP, of, of household income. That is a necessary reform because we may have overextended ourselves prior to the financial crisis, but as you can also see, it's been gradual. And one of the reasons it's been gradual are the low level of interest rates that has allowed the adjustment to occur more gradually than it might otherwise have appeared. How can we um, assess all these questions when we think about uh, the housing market? Well, very briefly, um, there's an explanation I've put forward before, but I'll, I'll quickly go through it again, we, we think of a certain amount or pool of savings in the economy that increases the interest rates, and we can think about those people investing in the housing market who would invest more um, if interest rates were lower and would invest less if interest rates are higher, so that slope is downward slope, that curve is downward sloping. And in the absence of the requirement for a, an ec- external finance premium, EFP, the quantity of lending in the market would be Y-star, But because those who are taking the savings and lending it to those who wish to borrow it cannot know the full credit history of those people who want to borrow or indeed their future outcomes, they will tend to want an external finance premium to pay them for monitoring and screening and also the riskiness of applying those loans. The application of that external finance premium means that the total quantity of lending is somewhat less than you find at Ystar and reflects the risks that the financial sector is taking. Now, if for some reason we think that that EFP is not enough, that the financial sector is not applying the appropriate criteria to extract enough of a risk premium to deal with the risk that we might see from time to time if the housing market were to fail, then we can apply macroprudential instruments that reduce further the quantity of savings available to those who wish to borrow to spend, And that would further increase the risk premium, so you get an MPI and an EFP that would be further restricting the quantity of loans available to those wishing to invest in the housing market. By itself, that may not be problematic. What you're doing, in a sense, is reducing the quantity of loans, but also reducing the overall level of risk. If you could, in principle, calibrate both uh, the external finance premium that the financial sector demands and also the increase in premium that results from macroprudential instruments, you could try to offset the potential risks that you might see in the financial sector and attenuate some of the fluctuations that we might see over the business cycle. Whether we've done that or not, I leave to another time, but this is the thinking that's out there at the moment as people try to deal with the risks, um, uh, which are essentially those to do with volatility in prices. It's not the secular long-term trend in prices or preferences that I've talked about, 
but they're the short-term risks of a collapse in prices that would lead to fire sales and a further downturn in the economy. That's what these things are, in a sense, designed to offset, rather than help calibrate the economy month to month, um, year to year. We talked about one form of risk that may be dealt with with macroprudential instruments. Another form of, of risk or, or heterogeneity, that means differences, are trends in regional prices, which are profoundly different in, in England. We look at the uh, nine regions here of, of, of England, we can look at the evolution of house prices in the last half generation or so since 2004, we can see very large differences between what we might broadly think of as the South and what we might broadly think of as the North. We look at London in 2004. Um, the average price at that time was £219,000. Um, by around this time last year, it was £482,000. Uh, the bottom line there represents uh, the North East. And uh, in um, the same year, 2004, it was around £100,000. And around this time last year, it was around £128,000. So if we put that in annual returns, if this were an investment, the average house in the northeast, if one such exists, would have given an average return of 2%, which actually over that period is not bad at all. Not a reasonable return. Quite a reasonable return. But in London, the average return is some 6% over that long period, which is an immense return. Um, implying a doubling of prices every 11 years were that to continue. So that's very, very hard to understand what form of changes in amenities offered by housing in London or changes in the costs of transport or reductions in interest rates would justify that very large increase in prices. There's an interesting question there to be put. Have the fundamentals changed so much in London or the South East vis-à-vis the rest of the country that we can justify these kinds of relative price changes. Is this a fundamental equilibrium price, as we would call nothing to worry about, or does it represent something that's off fundamental path for which there will be a rapid adjustment leading to the kind of problems I've outlined? Is there anything that can be done? Let me clarify a little bit more. Um, the Dudes and Economist is, is making this a little bit easier to see by aggregating. So... Um, all I've done here is, is look at the ratio of house prices in what we might, well, what we call, what is the London area compared to the northeast, and the bottom line uh, average across the southern housing units relative to the northern housing units. So this is simply saying the top line is simply saying that average house in London in 2004 would have got you two and a half houses in Newcastle, and by around this time last year, it's nearly four houses in Newcastle. That's what you can get. So it, it's not far off selling your, your, your house in uh, a London suburb for half a street in Newcastle, which is, um, sounds to me like quite a good, quite a good uh, trade, actually. I'm just going to think about that. I'd almost, pre- almost certainly prefer that, but um, there we go. Uh, and, and if we want to break it up further into regions, we can take the southern regions, the south, uh, London, the southeast, and the east, and the southwest, and compare it to the northern areas. And what you found in 2004 was, was if there were such a thing, that a composite house in the south was worth just, just slightly under um, about one and a half, slightly over one and a half, 1.7, 1.8 houses 
in, in, um, in the north, and, and certainly by last year it was well over two houses in the north. So there seems to be a north-south divide developing to some degree, and the question to ask ourselves, is that, as I said earlier, an equilibrium phenomenon or something that's going to require adjustment, and is itself something that hampers growth? Is it harder for, peop is it harder for people to move to where the jobs are? And if it's harder for them to move internally to where the jobs are, is it more likely that firms are hiring from overseas? Is it something that's fueled the migration debate without us realising it? I'll just, excuse me, another sip. I should have um, admitted right up front that I'm suffering from man flu, and I apologise for that, and I hope those of you at the front don't catch it from me, but as it's, as it's not a real phenomenon, you can't catch it, right? <laughs> um, now... Uh, so let's move on from the regional dimension and compare house prices to earnings as a measure of affordability. Now, what we do here is, is look at an index. So this is simply taking the house price at 100 in 1946 and weekly earnings on average at 100 in 1946. Um, and you can see there was a rapid, well, after the first couple of years, uh, from 1948 or so, a rapid increase in the affordability of housing because the index fell to around 70 by the early 1950s. And this is because there was a large increase in wages, and nominal wages, in the late 1940s and early 1950s. And houses were fairly stable at that time. That meant they became more affordable. So think of this as an index of affordability. The interesting thing to note is that from the 50s through to the 90s, apart from the peaks in 1973-4, when there was a property boom uh, right in the right at the time that Mrs. Thatcher was making a political broadcast in 1974, and again in the late 80s when we had, I think, what is commonly known as the Lawson boom. I'm sure where you're here today, he'd deny it was the Lawson boom. He's a famous denier of many things, I think, isn't he? Um, but anyway, we'll talk about that another day. Um, and, and we can see a couple of booms, but this reversion, in a sense, if you were a statistician in 1996, and if you could imagine just covering up the right-hand side of that chart, you would have thought, yeah, that was pretty good. You know, we were on the index, we're 20% cheaper than we were in 1946. It seems to be a stable level. Prices look as though they're about equilibrium. I'm not going to invest heavily in housing. Oh dear. Um, houses then, in this long expansion from 96 onwards, um, rose in this, in this index at least to 140 points. There was an adjustment again following the financial crisis, but it's heading back up. 240, suggesting that houses are some 40% less affordable than they were in 1946. And the question is, does that reflect preferences? Does it reflect the availability of loans, which we've seen has increased? Or does it, affect, does it reflect some other factors that we need to think about? But clearly, uh, well, if not clearly, there seems to have been some higher level, certainly in terms of affordability, at which houses in the UK have settled. Let's make that previous chart even simpler. Let's strip out everything that happened before 1997. Let's imagine the world started in 1997. Um, is it the year of Bank of England independence? Maybe it did, I don't know. But, uh, some people say, anyway, let's, let's, let's start this in 1997. Same kind of index. Simply, we've taken the house price index to 100 in 1997, and we can see where that's got to. It's increased by about three and a half times. And our earnings index has gone up by about 50%. And the dotted line there is a doubling. And you can see, very, very broadly speaking, house prices have doubled 
in expensiveness or, or halved in affordability. However, it depends how you want to put it, whether you like the word expensive or affordability. And that seems to be the kind of level we've arrived at, this overall increase in houses relative to the thing that matters is our earnings index. It's been, you'd imagine it's been a very good incentive to save, very good incentive not to put all our money on consumer goods, but to hold some of it by and invest in housing if we probably, probably could. It looks like a new level. In time-honored fashion, I have to say that I'm not saying that it is, and I'm not making any forecasts of the future, and I'm not offering any investment advice. So where does that leave our canny households in the UK? This is one of my favorite graphs, uh, um, tables. I've used it before, but we look at the household sector in aggregate. Household sector, as of the year before last, has nearly 12 trillion of assets, and just under half of that is in real estate. So in aggregate... We have a household sector that's holding around two and a half times national income as wealth in real assets. The loans against that are 1.6 trillion. So the net wealth is very large indeed. It's, it's something that wouldn't necessarily cause us to worry. And despite all the conversations out there about the extent to which housing has increased wealth inequality. Here's the problem. For those, and this is the key statement to tee this up, for those who have been able to enter the housing market, the changes in prices I have shown and the increase in wealth associated with that has been a great force for reducing wealth inequality, not increasing it. Typically, housing was held, held by a very small fraction of the population, 9, 10 percent or less. The increase in overall home ownership alongside the relative changes in prices that we've seen has acted to reduce wealth inequality, not increase it. I know the narrative is all about an increase in wealth inequality and there, is, there are some genuine issues there because my first point is it's only helped those who were lucky enough to have started uh, and uh, participate in the housing market. So the key question is how do you help or how do you get over the initial condition? How do you help those now being born or who have been born recently and cannot necessarily participate in the market? That's the key policy question, rather than anything that might be affecting those who are already involved in the market. Indeed, in an earlier lecture um, towards the end of my first period, I allowed, outlined the idea that housing worth itself may not be net worth, in the sense in which if... I hold a house and its price goes up over the time at which I hold a house, I'm selling that to someone who has to fund a higher level of expenditure. The net effect on the economy is zero from that transaction. So it's quite possible to make the case the increase in housing worth overall is not net worth in the economy. It's simply a distribution from those who hold housing towards hold those who hold housing away from those who would wish to hold housing. So I think that's an important question there. But the fact more people are participating has been a key driver downwards of wealth inequality. And this is shown by data not collected by me. I'm not making this stuff up. This is, um, this is the, the wealth, um, uh, the income inequality uh, data set started by Tony Atkinson and maintained by his successors. And this measures 
um, it's one measure of wealth, and that's the fraction of wealth held by the top 1% in the UK. So 100 years ago, the top 1% held, held some 70% of overall wealth in the UK. That's been driven down on a secular basis um, over this period. Clearly, this is in part the action of inheritance tax that allows the redistribution of wealth across generations. If you have a property that's distributed across a number of children, that will start to break down um, the shares held by the very top 1%. But clearly as well, if at the same time more people participate in the housing market, then the shares held by the top 1% will also decline. So rather than increasing, like many other measures of inequality, there's, a, there's some evidence of a slight increase, arguably, in this century, but it's been reasonably stable. And against any slight evidence of an increase in the last 10 or so years um, is the enormous secular decline throughout the 20th century, which I, I would submit um, has been a good thing, rather than not. So... Where do, we, where do we end up when we think about the housing market? Well, as I've discussed, lending is property-based. It's not something that happens outside of the property market in the UK. Most of what banks do is connected with property in one way or another. One of the issues faced in the market is the limited availability of equity participation. If you want to buy a house, it's a leveraged purchase. You put a small amount of your own equity down, and the rest of it is something that you borrow... And you hope, over the lifetime of the house, this leverage purchase will give you a higher return on your equity. That's the essential process that we enter. This leverage buyout is risky for the lender, because if you've only put down a small amount of equity, if you buy at the moment at which prices fall, you may decide to walk away from the property, and the lender may have to enforce a fire sale. Fortunately, in the UK, this has not been a massive phenomenon in the last business cycle. It could be very well that the high levels of employment we've seen during the financial crisis and in conjunction with low interest rates have allowed people to continue to service their loans. Um, one way we could reduce the costs or risks of uh, that form of purchase would be to allow further equity participation. So if I want to put down a deposit for us, if I could find someone else to participate in the equity with me through some forms of markets, that may reduce the overall riskiness in the sector, and may allow those of us who are not participating in the market to participate earlier than they might otherwise. For example, if you wanted to buy a house that was valued today at around £315,000 and you wanted to put down 15% as your equity, that would take you 10 years, over which time um, the, the price of the house would rise and you would have to essentially try and save £8,000 a year for 10 years in order to do that. And that's going to be very hard, even if you're on average earnings of around £25,000. So you may need equity participation in other forms, either through your firms or banks offering equity participation. Maybe a way for this to help. Overall, the housing sector looks overweight in housing wealth. That's a financial market. It looks high, 50% of our wealth now. Whether that's an appropriate fraction is something I still we need to think about. If anything, the world seems to be moving in the UK's direction. More and more countries at an advanced level seem to be holding more and more of their wealth in housing assets rather than physical assets or, or in equities. So that's an interesting phenomenon as time goes on. It may reflect the increasing growth of cities and the increasing, uh, use of, um, the increasing pressure on land use. Um, 
There are significant regional distribution issues. I'm not trying to downplay any of that, but I want to say sometimes the facts don't square with one's conjecture. And so, accordingly, wealth inequality hasn't increased markedly. What are the problems or solutions to the housing market? Well, much depends on your objective function for housing. If it's to avoid repossessions, if it's to avoid large price falls, we may be there, we may not be there. If it's to ensure that people who have got reasonable jobs can participate in home ownership, maybe that's something we're failing on because the young are finding it increasingly hard um, to buy houses. But that itself might be a one-off problem in the sense in which we've seen this large relative price adjustment in houses from the late 90s onwards, as the people who own those houses sadly start to pass away, that wealth will be given back to their future, to their successors and generations, and that will allow further distribution and may allow them to get onto the property ladder. So this may be a one-off problem that disappears as people start to pass away. But that said, compared to the US... Many of our um, older uh, people are holding on to their housing assets rather than liquidating them. So again, there may be a role here for equity participation to release more income for people who want to stay in their houses and allow that money to regenerate or redistribute around the economy. Um, there, I've talked about the need to think about other forms of equity participation, but I've left almost till the end one of the major uh, issues, I think, that would help, and that's supply. The world in which the population is growing slowly but in a measurable fashion, in which our preferences are not likely to be changing and the scale of amenities is limited, what we might have to think about are various forms of increasing supply. Thinking about Greenbelt, thinking about the use of brownfield sites where available, and also thinking about developing the transport infrastructure um, that would therefore push out increase in house prices to other parts of the country, and at the same time, further developing other nodes. If London is the point of reference, then that will be the peak of prices and everything will be relative to that. But the extent to which we can build regional areas of high employment for human capital and skills, we could offset some of the pulling power of London and lead to some relative increases in prices elsewhere. I think none of that is unusual or surprising, but so far successive governments haven't acted upon it. So I want to leave you with the thought that this is much, as much a supply problem as it is anything necessarily to do with demand. Thank you very much.